Welcome back to the book club. I'm Michael Knowles. And this month we have a very good book. We have the good book, as a matter of fact. And one of the most important moments in that book, that would be the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel according to St. Matthew, which is chapters 5 through 7. I am joined by Pastor Rob McCoy, who is the pastor of Godspeak and also former mayor of Thousand Oaks, California. Yeah, that's right. Rob, yeah. thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Michael. This is a great joy. I, I so enjoy you. And uh, th seriously, this is, I can check this off the bucket list. Well, thank you very much. Before we start, though. Sure. Can you give a 60-second summary of the Sermon on the Mount? For disciples, it's, it's how to build the Christian life. And Christ is speaking to those who have committed themselves to him and, and what it looks like to reformat a man or a woman so that they walk in accordance with what God desires. And he goes through all of that, beginning with the word beatitude, which means, interestingly enough, oh, how happy. Uh, our founders said, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, this highest virtue of doing that for what you were designed to do. You find who you are and what you're to do when you come to Christ. And the beatitudes is a roadmap for success in that life of Christ. So I guess we can just open with the Beatitudes. The, the nice thing, well, there are many nice things about doing the Sermon on the Mount, but one of them is, because it's so short, I, we can read a, a fair bit. Sure. Uh, so Christ sees the crowds. He goes up the mountain, sits down, his disciples come to him, and he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. I always find that you know, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. <laughs> when you're persecuted. When you're persecuted. And it's coming. For my sake. Yeah. yeah. And it begins with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It ends with, those who are persecuted, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Hmm. And, and each of these builds on the other. You begin with, blessed are the poor in spirit. And if you're a builder and you want to build a house, you got to get the bedrock. You got to have foundation. You can't have shifting sand. And the reality is when you come to the Lord, you realize in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. God wants us to come to the end of ourselves and, and he reduces us to a minimum that he can pour in his maximum. He is the rock. He's that foundation. We recognize, as the apostle Paul said, in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. God, I don't want to improve myself. I want you to take over and live in me. And, and that's the poor in spirit. You recognize that you're desperate. And then the next one is when it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is a kingdom of God. It, it also points out, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You mourn your sinful condition. You, 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 you see sin, and, and people struggle over the word sin. It, it's, it's an archer's term. It, it's it three means, letters. You yeah. should be able to get it. Yeah, yeah. But it's an archer's term where the bullseye is and where the arrow lands is called the sin distance, how far you've fallen from perfection. And, you know, the laws of nature, nature's God, we're, we're governed by that. And when we fail, that just means we sin and, and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But 
when you become a Christian, and he spoke to the, to the disciples, this wasn't for the whole world. When he spoke to his disciples, you're going to mourn your sinful condition when you realize who you are apart from God. But then the next one is really cool to me. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is reviled in our culture. Hmm. The Greeks didn't really know what to do with it. It wasn't, it wasn't an asset. It was a liability. Well, it wasn't considered a, a pagan virtue. No, no, it wasn't. But meekness is strength under control. It's like a bit in a stallion's mouth where you have this beast that is massive, but it's controlled by the master with this bit in its mouth. You pull to the right, the horse goes to the right, left, pull it, it stops. And, and, and meekness means you're under the master's control and you shall inherit the earth. And this is what's fascinating to me. You and I are sitting in studios in Southern California, the United States of America. America represents 4% of the world's population, yet we have more Nobel Peace Prize winners more symphonies, you ride an elevator invented by an American, enjoy air conditioning invented by American, greatest nation in the history of the world. And how did it start? Religious people, meek, were kicked out of their country by religious intolerance and they inherited America. Hmm. Well, God takes care of his own. The scripture says, I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor their children begging bread. Anything given to God first will never be lost. So that meekness, strength under control, fear dissipates. When you realize everything that you're willing to give up doesn't matter anymore, there's nothing they can do to you. And that, that's the first beatitude that isn't internal, it's external. It's, it's, it's profound. Hmm. I love that one. What's amazing is we're not even halfway through yet. There's much more to say about the beatitudes. But I notice that the, the way you're describing the beatitudes is not as a social reform. It's the there's obviously a public aspect because we live in time and space, but you're focused on the soul, on the internal, on your on, uh, something spiritual. Very often I notice people who are not Christian or don't believe in God, they'll quote the Beatitudes right. as if to say, oh, you Christians, you don't even know what Jesus said. Uh, you know, you're, if you did, you'd be a big liberal. But the, the Beatitudes are not about passing some social reform. No. There was a great line, I think it was Monsignor Ronald Knox, who said that our goal is to colonize heaven. We're not here to, uh, you know, just fix things up on earth. That's, that's a nice thing to do, but we, wanna, we want salvation. Right. Salvation is a goal, but Jesus did say, thy kingdom come, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We do want to make it a better place, but that's people whose lives have been changed and they're no longer self-centered, they're other-centered. Christ did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. So it, it's, it's a complete change in the human makeup. It's a trichotomy, as you see in Thessalonians, body, soul, and spirit in the Greek, soma, psyche, and pneuma. The body is the flesh, the, the psyche is the intellect, and the pneuma is the spirit of God. The spirit dictates to the mind what the body does, but without the spirit of God, we're just driven by our fleshly desires. And, and that's, that's the beauty of this beatitude is true happiness in him, meaning in God, is the fullness of joy. He's created you and you have a purpose. This, this is a good, a good mug because it's holding the liquid that's in it. If it was leaking, it'd be bad. It's doing what it was designed to do. You find happiness doing what you've been designed to do. And the beatitudes awaken you to that. You're happy. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers. Let's take, let's take those. Okay. Hunger and thirst. So when you're meek, you're, you're, you're guided by the master. Now you hunger and thirst with what he desires. Righteousness. I, I want to be right with you, God. Mm. I, I, I want to live a life that honors you. Well, he'll provide for you. Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. All these things will be added unto you. But we think about our appetites and our desires. Yeah. And so, so very often people have disordered appetites and they want things that are not really good for them. And this is something that Dante especially focuses on, is not just on what we do. Seriously, you give me stretch marks on my brain with the people you quote. <laughs> like, it's only Dante. I just love uh, Dante, yeah. as we've talked about on the show before. But, but he, he does this in particular where it's not just uh, what we're thinking and it's not just what we're doing. But even it's, it's our desire, which is, we, we don't want to just tamp down our desire or deny our desire. We just want our desire to, to be ordered toward its true end, who is God. Yeah, amen. And so we hunger and thirst for righteousness and we're filled. That's our great desire and he provides it for us. Where, where, where do we leave off? The, the merciful. Oh, now this is an interesting one. If you've wronged me or if I've wronged you, uh, you want justice, right? Yeah not mercy for me. You want justice for me. But if, if, if the reverse is true, mercy is not getting what you deserve. Now, really all of us really need mercy for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. And, and God's ready to give mercy. But he says, you want mercy? You got to give it. Yeah. The great line in The Merchant of Venice from the Portia monologue is, uh, though, though justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. And of course, in the Lord's Prayer, for, uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those, those who trespass, trespass against us. Mercy is greater than grace. And we've been saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, as any man should boast. But for mercy to be given, God is just. So somebody has to take the penalty. If the wages of sin is death, he took that on the cross. So it cost him something so that he could extend grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, saved by that grace, which is, we don't deserve it. He gives it to us in spite of it. Not only does he pay the penalty, but then he blesses us. Baffling. And the pure in heart? The pure in heart is this idea that you, you, you now have come to a place where to the pure, all things are pure. You start thinking and acting like the Lord. Hmm. And, and people would say, well, you're prude. Well, there's, there's an innocence about it. You know, I, I wasn't privileged to be raised in a Christian home. And we have five kids. Four of them are homegrown. One is grafted. We adopted Natasha when she was 12 from Russia. The, the, when she had a spell where she went off the deep end for a while. And as she was leaving and packing her car to head out of Dodge, I said, sweetie, you only owe me one thing when you leave. If you find anything better than God, you need to come back and tell me. And she, she headed out, but I told her, I said, sweetie, you're the only child I get of the other four. They're aliens in my home. I don't know what it's like to be raised in innocence and impurity and reading scripture and praying. I get you, you're experiential. You hit your head against the wall. You're the only child I'm really equipped to raise. And she came back and you know, you don't have favorites as a dad, but I do. <laughs> and, and she is the one that God has used to speak the most into my life. But that purity I see with the other kids, it's, it's foreign to me because that's something God did in time. Mm -hmm. But to see it in the innocence of a child 
walking with the Lord is profound. You know, a friend of mine once said, he lived a bit of life and, you know, was middle-aged, and he said, one thing I miss about my old, nice Christian life, I miss the innocence. Mm. And what struck me about that comment is, having been an atheist for 10 years and having lived like one for that time, I would never have thought to call myself a prude in any way. And yet, I've found since uh, returning to the faith, you can kind of get the innocence back. And it's, it seems counterintuitive, but you can. And so this isn't just a, a beatitude, you know, a, a line for people who have never erred. This is saying, no, 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 it's, it's not too late. It's never too late. But the Apostle Paul actually said, forgetting what is behind, striving for what is ahead, taking hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of you. God cast our sins as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more. He never brings it back. He never reminds you. He doesn't bring the list of all your failures. You're coming to me again with this stupid thing. He doesn't do that. Yeah. And, and there's an innocence and a hunger and you just, and you're going to see in the Beatitudes where it says when you're on your way to the court of law with your adversary, agree with him. I always struggled over that one and, until I realized Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And he was reminding me of all my failures. Yeah. And then I just finally stopped one day and I go, you know what? You're right. Everything you said I've done. Yeah, yeah. But if you take me to the court, my advocate, Jesus, and the judge, his father, he's going to say, yeah, all those things are recorded, but they're covered in my blood, case dismissed. I, I can agree with him. Yeah, in me, those are, I take credit for every failure in my life. But anything good in Rob McCoy is Jesus. Yeah. That's and the, that's the innocence restored. There, there's, uh, I forget who said it. Maybe I'll just take credit for it. I'll give it the, to you. There's you know, someone else who said it, uh, the three finest words in the Latin language, ego te absolvo. And it's this idea, you know, the Catholics have the sacramental confession. And so the priest acting in the person of Christ, you confess your sins and he says, okay, I absolve you of your sins. And then they're gone. Yeah. And you're innocent. Uh, the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Now you think about that, a peacemaker. People think peace is the absence of conflict. Nah, peace isn't the absence of conflict. Peace is the presence of Christ in the midst of the conflict. We're in an ideological war and you're gonna stand for truth and there will be conflict. Christ said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. The sword is truth. You're contending for truth, but Christ will give you a peace that surpasses all understanding. He'll guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus but you've interceded the greatest form of prayer is intercessory prayer. Christ is at the right hand of the Father making intercession. You interceded for me and he gave me peace. And, and not, the, the world didn't understand this kind of peace. I'm in the midst of the worst conflict you can imagine and I'm all right. That, that's, that, that's a great beatitude. And then a related point, I suppose. Yeah, come on, bring it. Those who are persecuted. It, it comes. For righteousness' sake. and and. When men revile you and persecute you, it's sort of like an addendum, you know, I suppose, to the Beatitudes, which is, it's the consequence of all of it. It's really telling that in, in that first Beatitude, blessed are the poor, poor in spirit, spirit, that uh, perhaps expectedly, Christ Im embodies this in the, that very first Beatitude because fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And so you begin with that poverty of spirit. And this is the beginning of that blessedness and that ascent. And then what's the consequence of that? You will be reviled and yeah, you'll be persecuted. And they're going to say all kinds of evil about you. And, and it says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. And, and as a new Christian, I remember reading that going, how in the world? Yeah. But then going through it, I realized 
I'm immortal until God's done with me. There's nothing you can take from me or say to me that's going to change the passion to stand for this truth. And, and you don't understand what's at stake. You're not my enemy. People aren't the enemy, they're the opportunity. Your ideology is the enemy, but you aren't. Now, we've got a lot of other aspects. We could probably talk about the Beatitudes all day. All day. But so much of the most quotable parts of Scripture comes from this very short part. Yeah. And so Christ says, you're the salt of the earth, but if the, if the salt loses its saltiness, well, what, what good is it for? Uh, you're the light of the world, and uh, a city set on a hill cannot be hid. That, that's one of the, the famous lines in the foundation of America. You know the word salary in the Latin, you get the word sal, salt. They were paid in salt. It was a currency. The currency in America for politics is winning elections. There's currencies in every type of exchange that you participate in. Christians have to understand that if we're going to, to be this salt, this currency, we've got to contend in the public square. As my Christian brother, but Catholic brother, Matthew 16, 18, you and I would probably see it a little differently. But Jesus said in, in Caesarea Philippi at the headwaters of the Jordan to his disciples, after he had said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. He says, upon this rock, I will build my, and everyone says church. Jesus didn't use a religious term. He didn't say synagogue or temple. He deliberately used a secular term. Ecclesia, Ecclesia yeah. which Aristotle defined as the public square of the city hall. It's where the citizens went to decide the welfare of their fellow citizens. And, and the two great commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbors yourself on these two commandments. Hang all the law of the prophets. So he says, and the gates of hell which enslave will not prevail. So if you're doing good for your neighbor, you're contending in the public square, in the city hall, for the wise restraints that make men free. From the moral law comes civil law. And, and this is the salary, this, this is the currency that we're contending. This is such an important point because the way that many modern liberal people uh, try to talk about religion, they try to make it just this purely personal thing. Yeah. It's not, they don't even say freedom of religion anymore. They say freedom of worship in your own, in your own little mind if you don't bother not, not anybody just, else. Not just the secular world. Pastors even and pastors Christians do, do the same. Sometimes. But that's not what religion is. Religion is a habit of virtue that renders to God that which he deserves. We are the body of Christ. We are, we are, where two or more are gathered, that's where our Lord is also. This is public stuff. Yeah. This is public stuff, and, and we shouldn't shy away from it. Uh, now, speaking of the law, uh, our Lord then moves on and says, Think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Yeah. That many evangelicals, pastors, see the law as the Old Testament and that we're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And the law is only there to show us we can't keep it. We need to be saved by grace. It's not. That's not the case. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians, the law is a guardian, a school teacher to point us to Christ until faith comes. The laws of nature, nature's God, as our founder said, you, you start to realize you're under the authority of a deity that has designed a universe that is, is knowable in many respects as, as a rational being. 
And, and these laws govern us. And if you violate them, then society collapses. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. This is true. We're not saved by that. But again, three to five million Jews were crying out to God for freedom when they were enslaved in Egypt. God sent an 80-year-old man to deliver them. <laughs> Moses contends with Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, who is God that I should obey him? Doubles the brick output, reduces the materials. The Jews who wanted freedom want to kill Moses. People want freedom. They just don't want to fight for it. <laughs> One man and God constitutes a majority. The 10 plagues delivered. The, the armies drowned in the Red Sea, almost finished. They get into the wilderness. Manna every morning, water where there isn't. Clothes don't wear out. Shoes don't wear out. But here's the greatest miracle. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, gets a downloaded moral app, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the moral law. He comes down, instructs the children, and places it in the center of the community. And from the moral law comes civil law. And here's the miracle. Three to five million people lived together for 40 years without a police force or a standing army. The law preserves and points to Christ. Christ saves. The law preserves. Beautifully said. Thank Beautifully you. said. Speaking of things people have heard said, Christ then moves on to another difficult saying for people. You've heard it that it was said to the men of old, you shall not kill, and whoever kills shall be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother shall be liable to the judgment. Anyone who insults his brother shall be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, shall be liable to the hell of fire. Then he goes on, it, tells you the, to, your, your rendition of the Bible, the Masoretic text is murder. It's a lot better than to kill. To murder, sure. Yeah. It's murder. The, that uh, Christ says, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar. And get reconciled to him. Right. And make friends quickly with your accuser. That's the one I was speaking Right, earlier. as you said. And then this is the tough one for people. This is one of the mm -hmm. especially tough ones. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. There are more examples of this kind of teaching that probably don't have time to get into, but what do we make of all of this? Well, let me begin with murdering. You don't need a gun to kill somebody. Your words will do just fine. Imagine if you had a child and you said you're ugly and you're stupid and we hate you and we wish you had never been born. You, you don't need a gun to kill that child. Your words will do just fine. Words are powerful. They cut to the soul of the human heart. Every word will be held accountable to God. God is saying, watch your words. Speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual praises, making melody in your heart one to another. And then we already covered the adversary, but then to come to adultery. Every sin begins in the mind. It's the most powerful sexual organ somebody possesses is their brain. You, you have to think of it and process it before you act on it. And the Lord is saying, don't even, don't even give that quarter. Hold every thought captive to the mind of Christ, the scripture says. Yep. And, and that's that idea of, of meekness being governed by the master. Lord, that, that's not of you. And then the Bible says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then 1 John 4 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He just has this ability to clean up our mind and our thought life. And, and th there's this concept of the near occasion of sin. So let's say you, you are a little gluttonous and you don't want to eat that cookie. Well, your lower appetite wants to eat the cookie, but your rational will says, I don't want to eat the cookie. Okay. Well, when are you going to break that promise? And you, when, I guess it's when you're standing at the cookie jar with your hand in the cookie jar. That's so you're pretty close. 
But doesn't it begin a little earlier? Doesn't it yeah. begin when you start looking at that cookie across the room? Doesn't it begin when you're in a different room and you're, you're just thinking about the cookie? And so if you consent with your will to start doing all the things that weaken your resolve right. and start... Back it up. Back it up. God doesn't give you grace so you can get close to the edge of sin. Mm -hmm. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So I'll, I'll bring up this teaching, even though we've had to skip some, because this is a little different in that the way that this has been interpreted over the years by some people is as a command for pacifism. No. No. It, 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 it's, it's litigious. It's this idea that instead of going to a court of law, resolve it between yourselves and, and, and go the extra mile. You know, if he wants that from you and he feels he deserves it, give him the other and let's just call it a day. And, and that's, that's the world's idea of justice. Um, and with God, there's pure justice, but to work it out amongst yourselves. But this idea of pacifism, that is not what that means in any way, shape, or form. If somebody's going to hit you with a baseball bat and, and they're supposed to turn and say, hit me again, um, you, you're coming after my wife? The Bible says a man who doesn't provide for his family is less than an infidel. That means protecting them yeah. from violence. Yeah. You come into my home seeking to injure my my family, you'll get a high-speed lead infusion. Just thought I'd I like that. that phrase. I'm going to start using a high-speed lead infusion. I have well, a Glock for the flock. You, 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 and you've reminded me, too, of actually what, what comes almost next. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then skip ahead a little bit to the golden rule, right? Love the Lord your God above all else and love your, your neighbor, neighbor as yourself, yourself yeah. which actually helps to explicate this turn the other cheek <clears throat> command, which is that you have to have a, a, a love of yourself that is proper to yourself. And that includes the, lo the law of self-preservation, because if you don't love yourself at all, if you just toss yourself away like you're meaningless, well, then you you would do the same to your neighbor. Right? If you're going to love your neighbor as you love yourself and you don't love yourself, how can you love your neighbor? Yeah. It, we love ourselves. <laughs> if we, I mean, people I mean, don't need encouragement. Yeah, you know? if, if there's a family portrait, it's a, it's a good portrait depending on how one person looks you. <laughs> right? It's a great point. And we, you wake up every morning thinking about you and feeding you. And we don't, we don't need to, we, we love ourselves a yeah. lot. Even people say, I don't love myself because I'm ugly. And I think to myself, if you truly didn't love yourself, you'd be happy you were ugly. <laughs> right. I right. mean, it's just this right. form of negative, yeah. you know, affirmation. And, and I, I would say what the Lord is, is speaking of here is where we, we don't have to, every time we're insulted, we don't have to rage. We, we don't have to respond in that capacity. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a governed response. And to love your enemies, you can't insult a dead man. And, and the Apostle Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. You go up to a dead man and go, you're stupid, you're ugly, I can't. It, 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 your insults are irrelevant to me because I am contending for you. You're not my enemy. You're the opportunity. Insult me all you want, but I'm not going to change in pursuing you mm -hmm. and, and seeking to share. And that really helped in politics because when I ran for office and the negative ads and the things that people would say on social media, right. I had to remember it's a disconnect. They're still human beings. And when I'd see them, I wouldn't allow that to affect the way I cared about him. Hmm. Even, even the supervisor who was after me, who really was he, 
the driving force and wanting to have me put in jail. I remember when the city was burning and, and we'd had the shooting, she was at every press conference. She, she worked tirelessly. I have great respect for that lady. Misguided in her, in, in her ideology, passionate about what she was doing, but she's wrong, but she's still my friend. Yep. I pray for her. Now, when you can't hate someone you're praying for. It's really hard. <laughs> It's true. It would require a Unless real it's an gymnastics. Prayer. Well, speaking of prayer, yeah. Uh, then Christ says in the sermon, when you pray, don't pray like the hypocrites do in this way where you're making a big show for everybody, where you're praying oh, in vain. King James English. Yeah, yeah. Don't, you don't. You don't need to do that. Go pray uh, privately. It, privately and pray like this. And he gives the, the the Our Father prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, and and then he talks about fasting. And then he says, when you fast, don't look miserable and whine and complain. Yeah. Actually, what you need to do is go clean yourself up, anoint yourself with oil, and go out there and be as cheerful as you ordinarily would be. Yeah, don't walk around like, I'm fasting for you and I'm doing the best I Yeah. I, I would say in regards to prayer and fasting, which is a good one to kind of focus on, the only thing the apostles ever asked Jesus to teach them, now they watched him raise the dead. The, the blind would see, the lame would walk, the deaf would hear. He'd feed thousands with just a couple fish and a few pieces of bread. The only thing they ever asked him to teach him, not once, but twice, was how to pray. Because they knew his, pri his public life of power was a result of his private life of prayer. And, and the Lord's Prayer that's listed there is, is puts everything into perspective. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It, it gives you marching orders. Yeah. And, and there's something sacred about the prayer itself, but it's also a model for even your, your prayers before the Lord. Right. That you follow this principle and you don't have to worry. And, and prayer is critical. It's the weapon we possess that moves things. Right. And then fasting, which is a lost art. You know, the, the foremost intense drives of a male adolescent, air, water, food and sex. And not necessarily in that order. At, at times, men would give up the other three for the fourth <laughs> right. one. But if you want to bring a life that is immoral and a, and a mind that is dirty into alignment, deny food. And what it yeah. does is, yeah. it, it, is it disciplines the body and realigns it. And fasting is critical in that capacity. Yeah. And when you fast, it, it, it really it, it brings you in tune with the Lord. Something I struggled with in prayer was, well, what if I'm praying for something that really wouldn't be good for me? And I just don't know. I'm not saying something immoral, but just something that actually wouldn't be good in my life. Yeah. I, what do I know? And, and so I don't want to pray for something that might not be good for me or for a loved one. And there you have in the Lord's Prayer, what, what is the prayer is, thy will be done. God knows better than we do. So that's a good, that'll, that'll probably fulfill it. Yeah. Even another, I mean, every line is one of the yeah, most yeah, famous yeah. lines of the Bible here, but Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O men of little faith? Yeah. Judge not lest you be judged. Does that mean we throw up our hands? We say, well, I'm not going to discern between sin and virtue? I would say this idea of judging you know, you, you want to you wanna condemn somebody, well, that's going to come back at you. Be careful with that. You're not, you're not God. But to judge and identification, you're telling me one thing and you're doing something else. If you're telling me you're an apple tree, I want to see some apples. 
<laughs> that's if not, I would be sacrificing my reason, my moral conscience. Yeah. How could I? Yeah. Wouldn't be human. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it by it are many. For yeah. the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those that find it are few. So pursuing the Lord, it's like we say, God, you know, if you do this, then I'll follow you. And he doesn't do it, and you, you, you quit. If you're truly hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and you're poor in spirit, you're going to knock, ask, seek, and, and you're, you're not going to be anxious at anything, but in all things by prayer and supplication, you're, you're, you're going to the Lord. He's teaching you patience and perseverance. God is never late. He's never late. He's always right on time, but he's never early. He's always right on time. He's always right on time. But we think he's late. Yeah. But he knows the beginning from the end and all points in between. And there's a process and a lesson in every portion of that. So you, you, you wait upon him. And I, I, I would say when you ask and you seek, you, you just do that diligently. And the last part of that. Oh, well, the, the, the way that leads to oh, life is right. narrow. Truth is narrow. Yeah. Two plus two is four. It's not five. And, and it doesn't matter how free. you. It doesn't matter how you feel. <laughs> yeah. And and people don't like. They say you know there's only there's only one way. Jesus said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me." It's what C.S. Lewis called the, the the trilemma. Yeah. Jesus said that it, and he used exclusive. I and no other. Yeah. Am the way. He, I and he no who other has seen me truth. has seen the Father. Yes. And you go well. That's narrow. Well, truth is narrow. Yeah. And and he he gave not only the statement pertaining to himself, but he gave the more sure word of prophecy yes. fulfilled. He said what he do and he did it. And, and you can bank on it. And of, of works of antiquity, nothing comes close to the Bible. This is what you hold in your hand, Michael, yeah. is profound, life-changing. It's the only book in the world. We don't read it. It reads us. Hmm. <laughs> now, what about some people who would try to turn the Bible to mischievous purposes. What about the false prophets? Christ says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Yeah. And, and I would say that that's very prevalent throughout history. And it's sad. But within man is a sinful nature, and there's no bigger stick to hit someone over the head with than God to pull money out of them, to play the money game, to manipulate. And, and people do that. And I, I would say, if you're attending a church where somebody is, is doing that, find a new church. Because every human being is capable of manipulation. And, and that, that, is a, that is a wolf in sheep's clothing. And sadly, it, it's more prevalent in history than, than you or I would like it to be. So some people who present themselves as Christians are not really, and that's what comes next. Christ says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Will I declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you evildoers. Very harsh. It also <laughs> says for those who he says, enter into thy, thy rest, he, they, they would say to the Lord, when did we see you in prison and visit you? When did we see you naked and clothe you? The contrast between the two, one is listing all their justification of why they should be allowed into heaven by what they've done. And there are none righteous, no, not one. You don't get in by any works. You're not saved by works. 
those that have been following the Beatitudes where they are, it, it, is, it has become, how many, time, how many times in the last hour have you, did you breathe? How many I times? Lost, I lost track. How many times in the last hour do you, have, have you blinked? Right. You don't keep track because it's just natural to who you are. Right. That's, that's right. the Christian life. It becomes who you are and you say, Lord, when did I do this? Yeah. You're not keeping a tally to show yourself good. You're, so, you're so surrendered. It, it is a work but it's a work that comes in cooperation with and yeah. as a result of grace. You don't do it to be saved. You do it because you're saved. Yeah. Yeah. Not, I, I do you're good not works. You're not going to earn your Yeah, I don't do good works heaven. unto salvation, but unto adoration. Right. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon a rock. And the rain fell and the flood came and the winds blew and beat upon the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And then the crowds were astonished and dispersed because this was a man who spoke with authority. Yeah. It ended the way it began with a foundation and that is Christ is our rock and upon him we stand. And that firm foundation, he gives us everything we need. In him is the fullness of joy. Anything we lack, he provides. He is a good God. He's not capricious. He will chasten us. He'll discipline us. But it's always in love and always for good purposes. And I, I would just conclude for all those who are listening that the shifting sands of life, I came to Christ because the things I didn't want to do I did. The things I wanted to do, I didn't do them. I remember telling God as little as I knew him, I, saying, I swear to God, I'll never do that again. And I do it again. There's some folks listening who, who are addicted and I've been, and, and you, 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 you want to quit. But every time you say, I swear, I want you do it. You don't have the ability apart from the Lord, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's your rock. This Sermon on the Mount, devour it, live by it, and watch as the word beatitude means, oh, how happy. It's a good life. This was what St. Augustine said about the Sermon on the Mount. He said, it is, in this short sermon, the perfect model yeah. of Christian life. It is. Well, on that perfect model, Rob, thank you for coming here. Michael, thank Wonderful you. Wonderful to be with you. You bless me. Well, you bless me and all of us. Uh, thank you all of you for being here on the book club. We will see you next month. Thank you so much for watching this episode of the book club on PragerU. PragerU is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so we rely on donations from viewers like you to keep this content on the air. Please consider making a tax-deductible contribution today to help keep this content coming. Thank you very much.